Welcome to this Niche Audiocast. I'm Angela Brown, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader at Niche. Today, you're going to hear a webinar that's been converted to a podcast so you can listen to it on the go. You can find all of the resources that are mentioned here and the original recording on the Enrollment Insights blog, which you can find at niche.bz insights. Enjoy. All right, everyone. Well, I'm just going to kick it off today. So thank you all so much for being here. Welcome to today's webinar. We're going to discuss the results of the 2021 PK-12 niche uh, state of enrollment marketing survey. My name is Juliana Goldring. I am the marketing manager focused on partner advocacy here at Niche. Um, I'll be moderating today's discussion. So before we get started, I just have a couple housekeeping um, logistical things to cover um, that often come up as questions. So we're going to be recording this session and we will send out the recording link with the slides and some added insights um, as a follow-up, as a, also thank you for attending tomorrow. Um, you can also uh, view all the results in detail on the Enrollment Insights blog, um, which we, you can get to as well using this link. I will post it in the chat. Um, if you have any questions or comments throughout the discussion today, please use the GoToWebinar box um, for to enter your questions. It usually loads on the right side of your screen, and then we'll save those for the end um, to have time for Angela to answer any questions. And with that, I would just like to say thank you again for being here, and I will hand it over to Angela. Awesome. Thank you, Juliana. Welcome, everyone. I'm Angela Brown. I'm the Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for K-12 at Niche, and I am really excited to talk to all of you today about some key insights from our first ever PK-12 State of Enrollment and Marketing Survey. But before I get into the insights, I want to share why Niche developed the survey in the first place. So when I was new to my previous position as a director of marketing and communications at a private school, I recognized pretty quickly that there was a gap in the market for PK-12 focused data around marketing and admissions that I could use for benchmarking, strategy development, and creating my budget every year. And as I'm sure many of you have experienced, education data is typically driven by colleges and universities and trying to translate that to the PK-12 world doesn't always work. So as I was coming on board at Niche, we saw an opportunity to create a comprehensive survey on enrollment and marketing to help PK-12 schools across segments, so public, private, charter, um, religious, non-religious, and this is where we landed. So we're really hoping that you find the survey and this program to be helpful to you. And if you have some feedback on things you'd like to see in the 2022 version of the survey, please reach out to me directly. My contact information is at the end of the presentation, or you can drop it in the chat and we'll make notes about that for next year. I'd love to hear from you either way. So here's a quick run through of some details for the survey. As I mentioned, this was our first year for the survey. We had 760 schools respond and the survey was open from July 20th of, to August 10th of 2021. Looking at the types of schools that responded, religious and non-religious privates were the highest number of respondents at 52% and 22. Schools with a total enrollment of 500 students or less accounted for 70% of our responses, while larger schools with an enrollment of 1,000 students or more accounted for 9%. 
The majority of the schools that responded charged annual tuitions of less than $25,000 and 9% of our responding schools did not charge tuition at all. So that gives you a sense of the range of schools that we had that participated in the survey. So now we'll get into our insights. So for our first insight, for some school segments, increased demand because of the pandemic has required them to invest more resources in their marketing and admissions teams. And we found this to be especially true for non-religious private schools, boarding and day schools, which are boarding schools that have both a day only and residential component and public schools. So those are the three school types that saw the biggest increases in staff headcounts. So we're gonna look at two slides that show that the infamous marketing or admissions team of one or even zero is still pretty common. But as I mentioned, there are some signs that there's some movement happening here. So first we're going to look at full-time employee or FTE is the acronym I'll use here, numbers for enrollment and admissions. So you'll see that 44% of schools have one FTE in that position, um, just under a third have zero. And then there's a long tail of schools that responded that have larger teams. And then here we see the breakdown for marketing and communication. So one surprise that we found when we were looking at this, and you'll see that the numbers are similar, um, a little bit more um, resources on the admission side, but one thing that surprised us was that school size did not have the expected impact on full-time headcounts for these areas. So a question that I see quite a bit is, I have X number of students and Y number of employees. How many employees do you have in marketing or admissions at your schools based on school size? And in this survey, it showed that that actually doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, so schools with less than 250 students were just as likely as schools with 1,000 students or more to have three to four full-time employees in enrollment and marketing roles. And what did have a difference was the type of school. So non-religious private schools, boarding and day schools, and public schools were more likely to have three FTEs dedicated to admissions and enrollment when boarding and day schools had the highest number across the board. So they were most likely to have up to four people dedicated to admissions and enrollment and have higher numbers of marketing and communication staff members. We also saw that 32% of schools reported having an increase in resources of some kind for marketing and admissions work, from adding full and part-time staff to existing teams to creating brand new positions dedicated to enrollment and admissions for the first time, which is really encouraging news for people who have been trying to grow their teams. Another thing we wanted to look at was who was responsible for driving marketing efforts in PK-12 schools, and this is where we landed. So 40% of schools reported having a dedicated resource for marketing, which lines up with what was on the previous slide, but some are still relying on other administrators, teachers, and volunteers to do this work in their schools. So when we looked at who fell into the other administrators category, the titles that came up the most were heads of school, principals, superintendents, business managers, and development and fundraising professionals. So with this next insight, um, for those of you who might be wondering why June 1st, just a quick disclaimer, June 1st is the contract binding date used by many private schools. So we just use that date to standardize the timeframe for the schools responding to this question since we had lots of different types of schools that responded. So for many schools, inquiry application and enrollment numbers for the last 
two cycles have been great. They've been super positive, but we really don't want schools to lose sight of the importance of retention and parent and student experience. So something that came up in a podcast episode that we released this week that was focused specifically on customer experience in schools is that the same market forces that existed before COVID, like declining birth rates, unsustainable tuition increases for schools that charge tuition, those things still exist. And there are also some new factors that are starting to come into play because of the pandemic. So schools that have seen increased interest during COVID can't take it for granted or assume that it's going to continue. I also wanna share a few other stats that aren't from this survey, but I think they provide some context around some of the movement that's happening in education right now. So these are data points from the Census Bureau and from the Department of Education um, about some things that are happening just during the pandemic. So US public schools lost more than 1.4 million students. It's a pretty sizable number. Charter school enrollment is up 7% and 5 million parents decided to homeschool their children after last year. So there are a lot of changes that are happening in the choices that families are making about how and where to educate their kids. Another thing that we're seeing, and this is preliminarily with our annual parent survey, which will be released in November, is that there are some ongoing changes in how parents are looking for schools, what they're looking for from schools, and there's an overall lack of loyalty that they seem to have with their current schools. So that's something that's definitely worth watching. So now we're gonna get back to our enrollment performance data. So first looking at inquiries, and this aligns with what I mentioned on the previous slide, nearly 60% of the schools that responded saw their inquiries increase last year. And then we see that again with applications. Um, we also saw the impact of some of that continuing uncertainty with parents at the end of the summer with yield and retention. So 42% of schools reported that their yield was flat, while 34% reported a slightly higher yield. So they're holding on to a few more families going through the admissions process and ultimately enrolling. Attrition rates were also flat for 42% of schools, but 22% reported increases in attrition. Those rates were also especially high among non-religious private schools and charters, um, which is interesting since that's a segment that's been getting a lot of attention in the media lately because of increased enrollment. So what's important to note here is that even though these key data points for schools are trending upward in general, schools across the board should be continuing to focus on retention strategy. And if you haven't done that in the past, now is an important time to do it. Um, I also want to reiterate a point that's been made um, in other spaces, which is that you don't wanna forget about the families that joined you in the fall of 2020, because last year was so different from what schools are, are offering and, and the experiences that families are having this year. Your families that joined in 2020 probably feel brand new again. So you wanna make sure that you're giving them the same level of care and attention that you're giving to families who joined your community this year. So for our third insight, virtual events were a very popular topic early in the pandemic with schools, and um, they've kind of become part of the new normal in the way that schools are engaging with families. There's more of a hybrid approach that I think that schools have adopted. And there were a lot of options that were, that were provided to families at the peak of the pandemic. However, 
we found that 32% of schools had no assigned annual budget for admissions events with public schools, 100% of public schools actually, and Montessori schools at 45% representing the highest number of schools with no assigned budget events related to family recruitment. And I would say based on what I shared previously about some of the market shifts that are happening, even public schools should be thinking about family outreach and engagement in this current market environment. Um, with the pandemic showing no signs of disappearing altogether, the need for virtual admissions events are going to stick around, we know that, and they can level the playing field for schools that have smaller or non-existent event budgets because they're lower in cost to produce. They also create an opportunity for schools to reach families that they might have lost previously because they couldn't come to an event in person. So you no longer have to worry about logistics standing in the way of a family being able to experience your school. And based on what we've seen about changing consumer behavior, on an increasing basis, people want to, to use, for lack of a better word, shop for things on their own time, on their own terms. And so families will be grateful for opportunities to engage with schools in this way, even after the pandemic slows down. For our fourth insight, so a common refrain that we hear is that we don't know how families are hearing about us, or we don't know if blank is working. And so one way to answer that question that I always point people to is to check your data, look at your analytics for your website and other platforms. But another way is to just ask, and surprisingly few schools are doing that. So according to the survey, only 37% of schools are surveying their families during the admissions process, which is a pretty big missed opportunity. Now, you'll wanna keep in mind that most of the schools that responded have formal admissions processes that they could evaluate through surveys. But I also wanna note that for public schools and districts and charters to a certain degree, you can also use parent and guardian surveys to identify areas of strength and weakness and to really nail down what your families are looking for in your school's program. So the key across the board is you want to create an open dialogue with your families. The recommendation that I would make here is to take a three-pronged approach. So an applicant survey, a new family survey, and an annual parent satisfaction survey, which is a box that most schools are checking already. With an applicant survey, that can help schools understand how your prospective families are hearing about you, but also what they're experiencing during the admissions process and why families that don't enroll choose other schools or choose to remain with the schools that their children already attend. If you survey your new families, that can help you uncover some gaps that might exist between what your team is saying in the admissions process and what they're actually experiencing. And if there's a gap, once a family actually enrolls, that's something you definitely wanna know. And that can also help you to address some pain points early on in the school year before they become big problems later and ultimately impact your retention. And then finally, the annual parent satisfaction or parent engagement survey is another term that I've heard that just provides your comprehensive look from new families, returning families, families that have been with you for years on where your school is doing well and where there are opportunities to improve. The big thing that I would say is if you're doing these surveys, which I hope you do, you wanna make sure that they're actionable. So if we take the parent satisfaction survey, the annual survey as an example, the worst thing that you can do is make a big deal out of launching the survey and then the families don't hear from you again until it's time for the next one. 
So one thing that I've done in the past is publish a summary of the results. At my previous school, we did it in our quarterly magazine. Some schools have done it in newsletters and other formats. You don't have to get down into the nitty gritty and do the same deep dive that you might do internally at a leadership level, but it is worth sharing out some of the results of the survey, good and bad, and also telling families what to expect next. So what are the key takeaways? What are the action items for leadership? And what's the timing that's associated with those action items? So with this insight, in addition to admissions events, we also wanted to look at other tactics that schools are using to capture prospective families' attention and the budgets that are allocated to those tactics. So we split traditional and digital marketing in two so that we could look at them very closely separately. And so what we found is that even though traditional marketing tactics are currently claiming higher budgets and heavier use, spending is on the decline in this area. So schools are starting to catch up to their counterparts in other industries with the traditional versus um, digital marketing spend. So before we get into where schools are headed, we'll look at where we are. Last year, schools were using a lot of channels, traditional marketing channels to attract prospective families. And there were some pretty healthy budgets to support those efforts. So while 19% of schools have no assigned budget for traditional marketing, 17% had annual budgets in excess of $20,000. Um, Non-religious private and boarding and day schools, no surprise, they were the most likely to have traditional marketing budgets in excess of $20,000. And these are schools that, as we saw earlier, tend to be more resourced in terms of headcount. They also charge higher tuitions. And so they're able to reach a little bit deeper in terms of their expenditures. Looking at where schools spent their budgets last year, print materials were very common. Again, not a surprise for anyone who's been working in this industry for a while. 71% of schools used brochures and view books, which continue to be you know, the, the cornerstone of uh, print materials for many schools. 65% used print ads and local publications and 40% used direct mail. Parent ambassadors, school fairs, and community partnerships and sponsorships were also very popular, but not quite as high as, as those other three items. When we asked schools how their spending had changed in the last year, this is where we start to see things moving a little bit. So it was flat for most. However, 33% reported some kind of decrease in spending and only 18% of schools increased their spending on traditional marketing last year. Next, we looked at how schools are planning to change their tactics for this year. So this is all for the current year, 2021-22. Despite their popularity last year, print ads and local publications were the top tactic that schools are planning to dial back on this year, with non-religious private schools leading the charge. It was 45% of non-religious private schools are, are planning to pull back on print ads and local publications. Instead, schools are planning to commit more of their investment to word of mouth drivers like parent ambassadors, community partnerships, and still brochures and view books, which is okay. That's actually not surprising because you know brochure, brochures and view books are pretty high cost materials to produce. So some of that investment just, be, just may be coming from the dollar amount that's associated with those pieces. So what does all of this mean? For one, if you're one of many people who has struggled to justify reducing your budget for print advertising, hopefully these numbers can give you a little bit of ammunition to do that. 
but also with these word of mouth tactics like the parent ambassador programs and partnerships increasing, schools have to be even more strategic in how they're using these tactics. So for parent ambassadors, that means being really thoughtful about the parents and guardians that you engage in that work and how they're supported. And I'll come back to that in a second. For partnerships, it means choosing organizations that connect to and reinforce your school's brand and mission. So not just looking at what are the organizations that are in my school's backyard, but really making sure that you're aligned in terms of your philosophy and the contributions that you're making to the community. Now, one question that I got a few times when this first came out was about parent ambassadors and how are people putting money into parent ambassador programs? And I, I wanna say two things. One, increased investment based on the budget numbers that we're looking at here could be a few hundred dollars, it could be a few thousand dollars. It really depends. So I don't want people to assume that people are running out and spending tens of thousands of dollars on things like parent ambassadors. I don't think that that's what's happening. The other thing is with parent ambassador programs, and there are lots of articles um, written about these, but it's about more than just giving swag to highly engaged parents or to parent volunteers. An investment might also look like training and helping them to really understand your school's brand and your messaging. And sometimes that may cause that may require an investment. If you um, like my previous school went through a rebrand recently, you might bring the people who led that work back on site to do a special training for your parent ambassadors or your parent volunteers, or that might be part of a rebranding exercise. It could also mean something like giving them a small budget so that they can host events that support the ambassador program. So a, a really robust parent ambassador program can look like a lot of things, but it's more than just giving them sweatshirts and coffee mugs with your school's logo on them. So our last insight looks at how schools are investing in digital marketing. And being someone who's very passionate about this, I was very excited to see some of this. Um, there are some bright spots here, but even though schools are seeing the value, budgets in digital marketing haven't quite caught up with traditional marketing, but that's changing. So. Here we see that a, for one, a much higher percentage of schools reported having no assigned budget for digital marketing compared to traditional. So it was 31% of schools versus 19 for traditional marketing. So there's, there's a bit of a gap there. And while 17% of schools reported budgets in excess of $20,000 for traditional marketing, that number dipped to 13% for digital. So that's another area where we have a gap. Now some continuity boarding and day schools and non-religious private schools were once again the most likely to report having those larger budgets of $20,000 or more for digital, while public schools, charter schools, and Montessori schools were actually the most likely to report having no assigned budget for digital marketing at all. Next, we looked at tactics. So paid social and email marketing tied at 56% as our most popular forms of digital marketing used by schools followed by organic social, SEO, AKA organic search, digital display ads and school search platforms like niche. One indicator that more schools are seeing the value of digital marketing is that 56% increased spending on digital last year, which is a pretty big contrast with the 18% of schools that increased their spending on traditional channels. So this is another area we're starting to see things move a little bit. 
Only 5% of schools reported decreases in spending on digital compared to 33% of schools that decreased their spending on traditional marketing tactics. And then as we look at how schools are planning to spend their digital marketing budgets this year, all of those signs are continuing to point to increased investment, even though we have a few contradictions. In general, only a few um, schools shared plans to decrease their spending on digital marketing tactics that were listed in the survey. So the overarching challenge here for marketers is going to come down to measuring ROI and attribution. So if you're not tying digital marketing to things like inquiries, applications, and enrollment, if you're a public school or a school that doesn't track engagement in that way, other engagement metrics for email, your website, social media, those are the things that you're going to want to be really savvy with and be able to make a very clear demonstrated value for. If you do work for a school that has a more formal admissions process where you're tracking things like inquiries, applications, and enrollments, then being able to tie your digital marketing work to those items is going to put you in the best position to advocate for more resources. And I know that's hard, especially depending on what your technology stack looks like. Um, but when it comes to selling things like digital marketing that um, people who are veteran educators may not necessarily understand at the same level that you do if you're talking to other faculty members or academic leaders or even your head of school, depending on, on the situation that you're in, to the extent that you can tie it to things that are very meaningful, meaningful and enrollment driven, that's what's really going to help you if you want to increase those investments. And so that concludes our overview of the insights. And this is just a reminder that if you have not submitted questions yet, please drop them into the chat and Juliana will be moderating those for us shortly. And then while we're waiting for those questions to come in, I do wanna share a little bit about Niche for those of you who don't know us well. Um, so one thing that surprises people pretty often is that last year we had 27 million students and families that use Niche to search for and identify schools. So we're really, really proud of how reliant families have become on the platform and how we were supporting them in that journey. We also help more than 2,000 school partners build connections with families and nurture them through the enrollment process. And then, of course, we have lots of ways that schools can partner with us um, in terms of representing your school and your brand where parents are already actively searching for schools and helping you build those connections. And then at the bottom of the screen, this was also at the start of the presentation, you'll see a link to a page where you can find the full results of this survey and others that we've created. So don't miss that. The parent survey that we're working on right now that we'll be launching in November, you'll be able to find that there as well. So please keep an eye on that page. And now I will turn things back over to Juliana so she can moderate our questions. Thank you, Angela. Uh, so we have a couple great questions coming in. Um, if you haven't already, please feel free to drop them in the question console um, as we move through these in the Q&A portion. So the first question we have is about uh, the survey for parents. And the question is, should the survey be about the admissions process or the onboarding process in general? This is, oh, the applicant survey? Is that the, the survey we're I think asking about? during the admissions process, surveying families about feedback about what strategies worked um, in that yes. process. Yeah, so I would actually put the onboarding piece in the new family or new parent survey. 
that's where I would put that. I would keep the applicant survey strictly to your admissions process. And then anything that ties to what a parent's experience is like during that handoff that typically happens between admissions and the more sort of operational and academic um, uh, parts of, of, of the house, I would, I would save that for the parent, for the uh, new parent survey. And is there a good example of the admissions process survey that, we, that uh, the audience could look at or have access to? I, I could put one together and add it to the notes for this. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have one um, of many, many examples from my previous life that, um, that I keep in a Google folder. So I will happily include that. Yes. I know creating surveys is tough, so we're happy to help. Great. Uh, this question was in terms of the, to uh, the responses for the total marketing budget for schools. Um, the question is, for those that are higher than 20K, do you know the average or what was the average? We actually didn't. Uh, I'd have to think back to where the write-in was with that. I don't know that we gave people an opportunity to list specifically what their budgets were, so I apologize for that. And the reason why we did it the way that we did it is that we found that oftentimes things like digital marketing or aspects of traditional marketing can fall in line items in a bigger budget. Um, but that's actually a helpful piece of feedback. If it would be useful to drill down into those ranges a little bit more, we're happy to do that for 2022. Awesome. Um, and also, is this deck going to be shared as well as the recording or is it just a recording? So it's both. <laughs> Actually, the, the way that it works, if you're not familiar with how we post our recordings on the Enrollment Insights blog, is that you'll basically see a recording of what you're seeing right now, which is the deck in one place and my face and Juliana's in another. So you'll experience it and, and other people who are, were unable to attend in person, they will see it the same way that you're seeing it as if um, you're sitting through the program. But um, what I can do is just export the deck and include that in the notes with, with the webinar. So that way people have both. That's an easy change. Um, we have lots of questions. <laughs> I'll try and get through a couple more. Um, were, did you break down or disaggregate the data by size of school or student enrollment? We did not. Um, and the reason why we didn't get too granular with this is that in larger markets, a lot of schools with smaller headcounts versus larger student headcounts, they all compete with each other anyway. And so we thought it would be really helpful for people to have more of that global view. Um, you know, public schools compete with private schools, just like K-8s compete with K-12s. And so that was the lens that we were looking at through um, from a competitor standpoint. But something that we've done in the past with other surveys is create Tableau reports, um, interactive Tableau dashboards on our, our surveys that people can use to drill down on their own. So that's something that we can consider for next year's survey. So that people who do want to do that really deep dive can have the ability to do that. Thank you. Uh, someone asked, can you speak about some remarketing examples? Oh, 
my gosh, how much time do we have? Can you be more specific? <laughs> That's really, are, are we defining remarketing or are you just looking for an example of what remarketing might look like? Um, or are we looking for a niche remarketing example? That could, there's a lot of ways that could go. I think, I think a niche remarketing example, um, or the most common, Teresa says the most common remarketing example. I think the most common remarketing example is what I will call the typical social media stalking example, which is where um, with Facebook being continuing to be the, the king of social channels for parent outreach, at least, um, you know, having a Facebook pixel installed on your website and um, with remarketing, you are able to target people who visit your website and stalk them throughout the internet. But um, more specifically, you can continue to follow them around Facebook. Um, so, I mean, that's that's the most common connection. People pretend to lean pretty heavily on on Facebook with retargeting. Thank you. Uh, this was a registration submitted question. So due to the increase some schools experience with enrollment, what are some of the best practices around weight pools for students? Yes, weight pools, weight pools. Um, so people are probably having more of those than they're used to. <laughs> Um, in the last couple of years, I, I think the most important thing that I would say here is to make sure that you're managing the expectations of the families in your weight pool. So in terms of timing for when they're going to receive an update about when space at your school is going to open up and also the likelihood of that happening, um, you know, you want them to be realistic and you don't want families to feel like they've wasted their time with you because it's a lot of work to go through the process of, of applying with multiple schools. Um, I would also look for ways to try to keep them updated on what's happening at your school so they still have some connection to your community while they're waiting for space to open up. And even though that requires a little bit more work from a segmentation standpoint, you'll kind of need a segmentation strategy for um, that specific audience, but it could be really worthwhile just to send them periodic updates, you know, keep them connected. And families are always going to remember the schools that go out of their way to provide really good customer service. So um, that would be my advice about weight pools. Thank you. Uh, this is a question submitted um, in our question console. Is it important for a school to have a large following on social media? Oh, that's a complicated question. So I think this is going to sound super cliched, but your following is really a vanity metric. And so I would say that quality is better than quantity with social media as it is with many other things. And so I would look less at the number of people following you and more at engagement. So how many people are liking, commenting, sharing your, your content? People that are actually interacting with your content, that's a much better gauge of the effectiveness of your social channels than how many people are following you. There could be people following you that worked for your school 20 years ago or followed your school because they were planning to enroll and they never did, you know, so that's, 
that's not always a great gauge. I would focus much more engagement. And I, I would also look at um, traffic to your website. I don't think that schools often send enough traffic to their websites from Facebook and Facebook really wants to keep people on the platform. So it's understandable that that's, that's the inclination. It sort of trains us to do that. Um, but engagement, 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 it, it trumps your following every time. Followers are important. You want people to see your content, but if there are a bunch of people there and they're not engaging, you know, then the algorithm doesn't pick up your content. It doesn't show up. No one sees it. Um, so you'll get more bang for your buck with engagement for sure. Thank you. This question says, what have K-12 admissions slash marketing teams found to be the best tools for turning inquiries into applications? Oh boy. So it, it's typically, it's not always about the tool, but in this instance, I think one constant is a CRM system. And that's because it's very difficult to provide the kind of real-time and super personalized engagement that prospective families are expecting and need without one. Um, that's also, it, it's true for some other things, you know, because CRM systems make it easier to do segmented communications and automated communications flows um, to really help you design custom communications for, for families. And so, um, one stat that I always keep top of mind is that on average, at least as of right now, you need to have five touch points with a family before they're ready to apply. So you have to have a really strong lead nurturing strategy in place. Um, but the key here is to keep your communications personalized, keep them very relevant and keep them relevant to where they are in the enrollment process. Um, so as an example, in my previous life, we had automated communications flows set up for inquiries where they would receive emails from us at different intervals after submitting a form. But then there was also an internal component to that. So our admissions team would know when to send an offline touch point. So for example, if you submit an inquiry form, you'd get the immediate confirmation and thank you. And then one or two days later, there would be a prompt internally for a member of the admissions team to send a view book or um, a customized piece about a specific aspect of the program that a family expressed interest in on the inquiry form. So um, that's a, a CRM helps with that a lot. Consistently communicating with families helps having a multi-channel approach for communicating with families helps. And, and we have a, a piece that we did about nurture communications uh, about a month and a half ago that I'll include in the notes for this recording. But, um, and, and the final thing I'll say is be mindful of timing. You know, even though we're seeing some much shorter um, consideration cycles for families right now as, as they're kind of figuring out where they wanna land with schools, there are still people who will inquire one to two years before they enroll. You know, you're always going to have those people. So um, having a good nurture, nurturing strategy is important, but you also have to be mindful of the fact that there are some people who just won't be there yet. They need their own strategy too. We got a couple of questions asking about what CRM tool you recommend for schools. Ooh, I love that one. <laughs> it's, it's, and the reason why I love it is because I, I hate to say this, but it, it depends. Um, so I'll start by telling you what to look for and then I'll get into what I've used. So things to look for 
Um, you want something that will integrate with your other systems to the greatest extent possible. Um, you want something that is relatively user-friendly that you can stand up in a reasonable amount of time. Um, and then, of course, you want something that's affordable. So in my previous life, we HubSpot. HubSpot is it's a beast of a CRM, and it can be extremely, extremely powerful and useful not just for sending emails and maintaining contact information, but also working as a true um, sort of sales engine or admissions engine um, and doing other things like adding chatbots and things of that nature to your website. But it's it, you need help to, <laughs> to set that up. I mean, I, I went through the experience of purchasing it, trying to do it internally, roll it out internally, um, and we had some success initially, but it wasn't until we found another partner to support us with that, that we really used it to its full capability. So, um, and there are other platforms like, um, you know, existing website platforms like Final Sites One that, you know, has some CRM integrations. And so there's a, there's a lot of, of that kind of work that's starting to happen in the school world, which is really positive. I think uh, in higher ed, they're way ahead of us on the CRM front. Um, but HubSpot is one that that I've used personally and um, that gets, I think it's gained some traction in the school world because it's a nice sort of middle of the road um, platform that, that schools can employ. What I will also say is that if you Google CRM systems, you're going to get some real heavy hitters like Salesforce. And that is not something I would recommend for schools because I think it's something that is a lot more than you need. Um, so I would just say, you know, try to find something that will integrate with what you have, set a budget and try to stick to it, find something that is user-friendly and relatively easy <laughs> to stand up, um, especially if you don't have the resources to bring someone in to help you with it. And also ask a lot of very specific and direct questions about how that system is going to help move your specific needs forward. Thank you. Uh, we just have time for one more question. Um, so this was a submitted question. It says, because of the pandemic, we have less photo content to use for marketing purposes, paid social ads, print ads, um, or the photo content we do have has students mass slash socially distanced or in some cases even, even remote. Do you recommend using older photo content 2019 or earlier or using current photo content despite masks slash distance? In other words, do you find that consumers want current content despite the pandemic or do they want pre-pandemic content? I think that consumers want real content. And right now, real in a lot of schools means that kids are in masks. Um, that's something that we struggled with a lot last year when I was in my previous position and we were thinking about, okay, we it's been two years since we've had a photo shoot because we didn't have one during um, you know, the, the peak of COVID. Um, we actually canceled our spring photo shoot because it, was, it coincided with when the school shut down. Um, and this was a really, really big topic last fall, I remember, among schools. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you, that you brought this up again because what we found is families, people in general, humans want reality. And, you know, as you've probably seen, there are some commercials now that are still showing people masked and unmasked because that's what you see when you go out into the world. And so 
when we did our photo shoot last year, we very intentionally and thoughtfully um, planned it so that we could distance and everything else. But we planned it knowing that our students were going to be in masks, our faculty would be in masks, and we just owned it. And, and the other thing that I would say too is that you almost have to think about the sort of evergreen spaces um, or platforms that you're using for marketing and the ones that continuously evolve. And so if you have to make a choice, you know, between having pre-pandemic photography versus very current things, you might want to kind of leave your website as it is and just focus on having, you know, photos of student in masks, students in masks, or whatever is reflective of what's happening in your community right now on your higher traffic pages. So your homepage, your admissions pages, um, athletics pages tend to be really high, um, you know, do that there. And then social media can be the place where people are seeing the day to day. But in general, I would say if, if I were to walk into your school right now and see lots of people in masks, then that's, that's what I would expect to see in your photography. Great, thank you so much. Um, thank you for everyone who submitted questions and we appreciate you all being here. Thanks everyone.